In studio with us this evening, we've got Dr. Asanda Benya. So she is a um, sociology lecturer at the University of Cape Town, and it's an absolute pleasure having her on the show tonight. Welcome to Night Talk. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us. So um, I suppose just to contextualize it for the listeners, um, firstly, you know, I love doing this section of the show, South Africans who are doing great things, because I think it's important for us to showcase individuals who are doing you know, doing what they love, but also really showing us different sides of our society, um, you know, in, in different ways. And most of the time in this section of the show, we tend to feature entrepreneurs or business people. But I think that there's also a space for us to talk to academics who do play quite an important role in society. So in talking to Dr. Sandra Benya this evening... She won the uh, Ruth First Prize um, for her article, Invisible Hands, Women in Marikana. And uh, this was voted as the best art or selected as the best article by an African author in the Review of African Political Economy. And then in talking about some of her research uh, interests, she uh, does most of her research around labor studies, gender, labor, social movements, the extractives industries, etc. So that's the person we're going to be talking to this evening. So just starting off, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Benya. Who are you? Where's home? Where do you come from? How did you fall into this space? Uh, thanks, Laudin. Uh, Asanda, I'm from, I was born in the Eastern Cape. I did most of my primary school in Umtata and then I moved to King Williamstown for high school and then to Johannesburg at Wits for university and I actually started at medical school I did three years of that dropped out it was not going very well <laughs> I was not enjoying it mm. uh, but at medical school at Fitz you have to do uh, a social science degree well pro, uh, sorry course and so I did sociology of health and I liked it and so when I was thinking of changing from medical school I thought hey there's this sociology that I've been enjoying the past three years Maybe it's something to try out. I tried it out and I liked it a lot. Quite a number of things that struck me when I was doing sociology and I decided to pursue it. And I pursued it from undergrad all the way up to PhD. Wow. And and tell me, what is it specifically about sociology that you found so attractive or fascinating? What 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 was it about sociology that got you? I think, I mean, I was, like I said, I came across it when I was at medical school. I think what struck me, uh, attracted me to it, is that it was a different way of looking at the world. It was not your very medical way of looking at patients, but it was, okay, yes, someone might be sick with this and that, but this is someone who's coming from a community which has A, B, C, D. Mm. This is someone who has these kind of values. This is some, So it looked at people as holistic beings, mm. but also it situated individuals within their societies, mm. their communities. And that for me was attractive. But I think once I started doing sociology, it just sort of gave me a different lens of looking at the world, a different way of understanding the world we live in. And it was refreshing. It was very different from anything that I've ever done before. Uh, that different lens of making sense of my world and of making sense of what's happening around us in South Africa. Mm. Uh, and then I decided while I was doing it that I actually liked labor side. So I pursued industrial sociology, which is more deals more with workers and mm. all kinds of workplace issues. But it's essentially about power issues in the workplace and... Um, that was again interesting because I had never looked at labor from that perspective. I mean, when you hear about workers, when you hear about labor in South Africa, it's mm -hmm. always 
they're protesting and but no one ever digs deep but why are people protesting who enjoys protesting and mm. so sociology labor in, to be specific it was that um lens again helping mm. me understand oh this is why people do what they do but this is what prompts people so it's not just this one side there are multiple sides so how do you understand those sides so all of those things together Mm. Wow, that that's quite cool. So I mean, that actually leads us quite nicely into the the question that I really wanted to ask, which is about this paper that you've written, um, "Invisible Hands and Women in Marikana." So um, when we think of Marikana, we think of um, you know, thirty four miners were shot dead by the South African Police Service, and that's sort of where the the narrative ends. I mean, of course, it 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 focuses into what was going on at the mine it focuses into you know the relationship between power and labor between politics economics all of that but the the stories of 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 the women behind the scenes are non-existent really in the mainstream narrative and so you know tell us a little bit about that what informed your your thinking to say okay wait there are women in this mix and their stories need to be told Uh so for my masters I did a research on women who are working in underground mines uh and the research was based in Rustenburg and what I do with my research is I use ethnography so I go and I live with the people and I work with the people and so I decided after doing that that I wanted to pursue the PhD and so 2012 I was actually doing my field work meaning I was living and working in one of the mines around Rustenburg And when Marikana the massacre happened in 2012 I was working about 20 kilometers from Marikana and these were mine workers I considered myself a mine worker because I had been working with them for almost nine months around the massacre time and so it was a matter of okay one some of our people have been killed what are we going to do what am mm. I going to do as someone who is one a mine worker but also who has uh who can write about well who is writing about the conditions in the mines and so i decided that okay i need to go to marikana and find out what's happening and since my focus is always gendered and i always consider the side of women i got there and obviously i started chatting with a lot of women and from the chats so the initial visit to marikana it was just to see what's happening in marikana how can we be supportive uh support the family members who had lost people uh but also support the broader community and so when i got there i started chatting with women and from the conversations with women i mean they were intrigued that people thought there were no women in marikana mm. and they were offering me their narrative and so with that narrative i thought okay so what do we do with this narrative i then had to write a paper about what the women in marikana were doing and so i sort of started a side research uh, about what the women in marikana were doing before the massacre Uh, what the women of Marikana were doing during around the massacre time and after the massacre how they were also as important in uh, sustaining the community and keeping things together after the massacre as men and as every other like other people were coming from especially social movements from Johannesburg and so it was more like okay these people actually been, have actually been doing something right and something that's quite important but not just something that's important in relation to the strikes in 2012 but they are lives around mm. the mining communities are completely um are driven by what goes on underground and so the paper is about that it's about making visible these invisible hands of women 
but not just, I mean, I think what I try to do in the paper is not just to talk about the strikes in 2012 and 2014, but to talk about their lives. So not just them as women who are linked to mine workers, but as women who are part of this community in their right. own right. right. Uh, but also women who are often considered, uh, I mean, when people talk about women in mining communities, it's always the case that people will talk about them as it's women who are there because their husbands are working the in the mines, right? right? right. Uh, mm. Or their partners are working in the mines, but people never really consider, but wh why would someone just be in a place if it's one person within that family who's working? And so people never consider the role that women actually play in sustaining these mines. And so that's what the paper is also about, is to say, hey, their hands were invisible during the massacre, around the massacre time, but actually their hands have been invisible for a very long time uh, because these companies, mining companies, are able to be as profitable as they are because of the invisible work mm. that women are doing. And it's work that's been marginalized. It's work that people often say it's, it's women's work, it's housework. Mm. But what I do and what I'm trying to show through them, the conversations I had with them, is to show actually the work that they're doing is not just work uh, for the household. It's work that has a direct impact on capital. It's work that has a direct impact on profits. Mm. It's work that uh, actually creates surplus value. So it's not right. just use value in the sense that, well, you're boiling water because you don't have a, uh, electricity mm. at home and that's what every other woman in the country does. What I'm doing in the paper is to show, well, this is not the same kind of work that they're doing. So it's not use value, it's surplus mm. value in that it creates surplus for these mining companies because the minute they withdraw that kind of labor, uh, mining companies feel it. They yes. don't feel it every day because women don't withdraw their labor every, every day. day. But if yeah. you were to do that, so basically the paper is to uh, bring to the light, illuminate some of that reproduction labor that women are doing, how they reproduce the labor mm. power of the mm. men who go underground to work. Mm. So, I mean, I, I, I would like to just uh, delve into that slightly more. Um, it's because there's obviously a bit of a competing, well, if you want to call it competing identities, right? The the women of the minds as, as wives um, and the typical sort of gendered perspective that that society would have around them, and then there's the there's the there's the identity of women as uh, workers in of the minds, if you want to call it that, right? They've got some sort of other identity with the mind that we don't tend to recognize. So, in the context of the Marikana massacre, um, you know, I'm interested to hear from your own research. What is the nuance that comes out from these women's stories? Because they're not just the wives and they're not just the workers. They're both. And what Marikana did is that it forced them to, I suppose, try to fit into one of those identities. Um, yeah and no. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are women. Uh, these are women who've got their own agency. Right. Uh, but I, I'm not sure if this is answering the question. What the massacre did was to disrupt their day-to-day -day lives. And so in a way, not that they had to choose either or, but they had to navigate mm. that crisis and not just navigate that crisis as just women who live in Maragana, but also navigate that crisis as people had lost neighbors navigate that crisis as people who now had to be breadwinners, if we're to use that mm. language. Um, 
So it was not necessarily either or. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of murky ground between what they had to do, mm-hmm. what Marikana meant for them, what the crisis of what's happening in the mines means for them every day. But also you must remember that after the massacre, there was the commission and how even that commission sort of defined their lives. Some women, for instance, that I talked to were looking for jobs mm-hmm. before the massacre, right? But after the massacre, during the commission of inquiry, the Marikana Commission of Inquiry, initially it was in Rustenburg. And so they could, you know, sometimes go look for jobs some days or go look for jobs in the morning and in the afternoon go to the commission of inquiry and listen for family members who are back in the Eastern Cape or Lesotho or who were working during the day. But when the Commission of Inquiry moved to Pretoria, some of them had to stop looking for jobs. So in a way, it defined Mm. their lives. Mm. uh, Mm. And so they had to navigate that other crisis. Okay, Mm. what am I going to do now? Am I going to continue looking for a job? Or am I going to push for justice? Mm. That is, go to the Commission of Inquiry and stop looking for a job. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. And so I suppose the other thing then for me is, what is it that you do this and you write and you say this is the nuanced perspective that I'm bringing around the experiences of these women and what is what is your hope with bringing out this type of research what is the the I suppose this is a horrible language to use but what is your what is your end goal end goal yeah I don't know if there's an end goal but hmm. my hope is that people I mean there's a quite a number of things I'm hoping for one is justice for the workers in Marikana um but two is recognition that actually it was not just men who were who contributed, or it was not just men who were involved in the strike. Women were also involved um, in the Marikana strike. But so that's the one part, and that's specific to Marikana. But mm. there's also the part of women in in discourse in South mm. Africa in general. When you talk about different struggles that have been waged, whether against apartheid or Capital in the case of Marikana, that women are often sidelined. Their contribution is not recognized. Mm. And so I think what my hope is, is that we'll actually start taking a different, you know, sort of look at struggles differently and mm. see how different people contribute to different struggles in many different ways. So mm. it's not just that when you are contributing to a struggle, you have to go to exile, right? Or that you have to be at Robben Island. So what were women doing at different uh, periods Mm. in in Mm. contributing to different struggles? And in Marikana, I'm saying this is what they were doing. And we need to understand that it's not like women in Marikana were silent or completely uh, not doing anything. They were Mm. doing something, but it's the way in which we understand struggles that's problematic, that needs to be recalibrated in ways that will illuminate different roles. Mm. So that's the one hope. But also another hope is uh, for obviously justice, not just for those who were, but for their families also. And again, that touches on women. I mean, it's widows in different parts of the country and the region, sub a region, Lesotho, Mozambique, Uh, where wives are now all of a sudden having to make sense of their different lives, something they didn't even plan for. Uh, And it's not that their husbands were killed while working underground, they were killed for demanding a Mm. living wage. Mm. And so my hope is that people will continue to remember. I mean, you know, when when we continue to remember injustices in our time, then we are able to act or we want to act or we think about our world differently. 
And so that's my hope, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for those of you who've just joined us, we're talking to Dr. Asanda Benya, and she is a, a lecturer in sociology at the University of Cape Town. We're going to take a break. Um, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other things that she is involved in. You're listening to the voice of Lovelyn Chidimawadei. In studio with me this evening, I've got Dr. Asanda Benya, and she is at the Department of Sociology at UCT. Um, we've been talking a little bit about her work. So, um, you know, one of the good things and great things that happened for her this year was that she won the uh, Ruth First Prize uh, for her article entitled Invisible Hands, Women in Marikana. Um, and this was selected as the best article an African author um, had written in the Review of African Political Economy. So, uh, so far in the conversation, we've been talking a little bit about, you know, the experiences of women within uh, mining communities, uh, and not just as, you know, the wives of miners, but also women that actually play quite a significant role within uh, that industry itself. So, you know, continuing the conversation, I, I really want to delve a little bit more aside from the work that you you know the research and the work that you do I want to talk a little bit about you know your role as an academic and 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 the support that you have offered to students your perspectives around you know fees must fall free education which has really rocked our universities over the last well this is the second year of it what is what are some of your thoughts on that what is the role that you you think you can play, have played, will play? <laughs> <laughs> That's a loaded question. Uh, some of the my thoughts on it, obviously, I'm absolutely for free, quality, decolonized mm. education. Mm. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was at WITS, and uh, that's what we were talking about, uh, that it's absolutely necessary. I mean, in a country like ours, where we have massive inequality, uh, we have people who have absolutely, absolutely no hope of getting into university mm. unless fees are scrapped. I mean, when I think about some of the mine workers I worked with underground, uh, one thing that they kept talking about all those months when I was working with them, they knew that I was a university student. Mm. One thing they kept talking about was that they would love to have their kids at mm. uh, universities. They would love to have they would love for their kids to have the same opportunities mm. I've had. And mm. I know that with the kind of wages that they earn, there's absolutely, absolutely no way that mm. their kids, unless someone from, something falls from, mana from heaven mm. falls. Um, mm. So when you think about the fees that students pay at UCT, and I, I know for sure that none of my mine workers will ever be able to bring their kids to such a university unless they get a big scholarship. And it's very difficult for undergrads. This is something people do not understand. It's very difficult for undergrads mm. to get scholarships in South Africa. Maybe at UCT, you may have some students with scholarships, undergrads, but majority of the universities in this country, students who are doing undergrads have no scholarships. Mm. They may have loans, but again, this thing of people thinking that the loans are an answer, they're not. They're just another way of imprisoning people right. and locking them in poverty Indeed. because as soon mm. as you finish um, paying, as soon as you finish graduating, you're under pressure to get a job and we know that it's not very easy for people from some universities especially to get jobs mm. so you have a debt uh, there's people at home who are looking up to you wanting you to support them but because you have this debt and it's difficult to get a job it's just it's crazy system so it's not sustainable mm. and if we're thinking about uh, the development of this country the uh, trajectory of South Africa future you know we can't think about 
a productive South Africa without thinking about actually we need to restructure the education system mm. and the funding model in education, right? Mm. So that's my, I fully support it um, from that angle. Mm, mm, mm. Um, sorry to, to interrupt you, but I've got a caller here that, that's been holding on the line. So I just want to give him a chance. Uh, Mbatane in Pretoria, good evening. My exam is getting finished here. Ask you. How are you? Good, good, good. What's good. on your mind? <laughs> <laughs> uh, great work. I mean, Asanda, uh, excellent work. You know, I mean, in actual fact, the impact of women in in any industry, you know, it, it creates a stability. And in actual fact, it has a major impact on the productivity and the bottom line of this big company. So I think you've touched on a great uh, topic. How do we get hold of your work? I mean, do we go onto the website or the paper that you've written? Is it a book? Or how do we get hold of that? Okay, she'll answer your question. Thanks, Mbatane. Okay, no, no. I had, I had the last issue too. I wanted to find out how did she find the impact of the disposable income of a guy if the wife is not around in the mining area, whether it's in the Tlaxopera or it's in the Rasenberg area, and the wife is back home and he's going to get a girlfriend. How does he able to balance the disposable income to manage these two houses and still, you know, have to... Doesn't it put a lot of pressure in terms of disposable income? Uh, I'll listen on the radio. Okay. Thanks, Mbatane. Thanks for your question. Okay. Give it a shot. <laughs> Uh, how to get hold of the paper, the journal. Mm-hmm. The journal is has made it available freely online. Uh, so all you have to do is just Google it. Mm. If you have access to the internet mm-hmm. uh, and if you Google Asanda Benya, uh, Invisible Hands, Women in Marikana, the article will pop up. Uh, you can also get it on Google Scholar for those people who are at universities. Mm-hmm. So it's freely available online mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. June next year. Yeah. So they've made it available for free for about a year. Um, what I'll do actually is I will share the link. I've got the link okay. here uh, directly from the uh, university, the department's uh, Department of Sociology's website. I will share the link for you guys online, and then you can just uh, copy that and download the article. It's really a brilliant article. Um, but to Mbatane's second question, which is the multiple relationships and managing funds i wasn't really sure i think he was asking more about how they spread the their income between two households uh-huh. Not, uh, mm, mm. so two households i think it's actually a question for a lot of south africans a lot of black south africans are supporting more than one household mm. uh, and so they also do the same thing that other people do they try and spread things thin which is why the workers were not just demanding a better wage or a higher wage they were demanding a living wage because mm. like all other South Africans are supporting multiple uh, household members and two households, sometimes three households. They were not able to earn out a living from what they were earning. And so a lot of times they get uh, into debt because they go and loan money from loan sharks. Uh, so they, I mean, they try and spread it thin. Mm. Uh, and some workers that I worked with, they could not send money home every month. Uh, and so they would send it maybe once every three months uh, sure. because it was just, and sometimes they'd send it more than that. Uh, I'm not saying everyone could mm. not, but it was, it's not a lot. It wasn't a lot when I was doing the research and it has not increased substantially even now. So they still try and spread it thin, but not much. 
Mm, sure. And I mean, just out of interest, on, on average, what was the average salaries for the miners? Uh, I mean, again, when you're talking about miners, there's so many different levels. Mm-hmm. There's people are outsourced, outsourcing that students are also talking about at universities. It's happening in the mines. Mm. So there are those who are outsourced who earn very, very little. So it depends what you are doing. So if you're a cleaner underground, a toilet cleaner underground, you, I think some of the guys I worked with, uh, 2013, 2012, they were mm. earning about... A thousand five hundred rands as cleaners, as cleaners underground, uh, contract workers, and some of them were earning about because in some of the mines in 2012, beginning of 2012, towards end of 2012, when we had the massacre, they were demanding higher wages, right? And so some mines increased their wage. Uh, I know one of the mines increased wages to about nine thousand rands, but that's nine thousand rands the whole package. So mm. some were still taking home five thousand rands, some mm. were still taking home seven thousand rands, and if you've got two households, and I mean statistics say that. Uh, mine workers, one mine worker supports about 13 mouths. So if it's 7,000 rands, and if, just for people here in Cape Town, 7,000 rands, what can it's you rands. do with it? But not just what do you do mm. with 7,000 rands. You have to consider the fact that these people, every time when they go underground, they're gambling with their lives. So you can't say, but domestic workers are earning 2,500 rands. We're talking about very two different sectors mm. here. We're talking about people gambling with their lives. Sure. Uh, in so many ways, you can die, but also we know that in South Africa, uh, we a lot of people have got tuberculosis and mine workers. So you die. Uh, mm. It's a long process towards mm. death, mm. but also the fact that the rocks can fall while you are underground. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. So, I mean, moving then a little bit away from, um, you know, the, the, the topic itself around, you know, mining and, and, and that industry. Um, I want to talk a little bit about just your own experience as a, as an academic and as a black academic in universities today. What are some of the, firstly, what are some of the challenges that you've experienced? But how do you maybe understand your own, your own role in the academic space? Uh, challenges. Oh, there's quite a lot of mm. challenges. Being young, being black. I mean, just mm. now when we had the student protests mm. last uh, last month, uh, being a young black female and you're entering campus and there are police and private security all over campus, you almost always have to prove who you are. So some of the challenges is that you are not the right body. And I'm mm. using right in inverted commas. Mm. You do not mm. represent the typical. Mm. Uh, so those are some of the challenges. But also, I mean, we're talking about a lot of pressure. This money issue around universities is not just with fees, but also academics competing for research grants, uh, support in terms of their research, because you need resources in mm. order to do research, research that to some people does not look significant. So mm. that the funding uh, issues for academics, but also respect. I mean, some students, black and white, especially, I mean, yeah, students do not always trust a young black person in front of them. And especially if you're going to be talking about labor, labors mm. in South Africa, the history of labor, it's mainly been white old men, right? Mm. And so you're a young black female. Uh, people just don't really believe you when you're standing mm. in front of them and you're saying, I'm going to be teaching you. And this is a group of postgrads or even undergrads, especially mm. undergrads. Uh, so those are some of the challenges, but also I mean, race is a big thing. I'm at the University of Cape Town. Uh, race mm. is obviously, obviously a very big thing. Uh, that even it's not just students who don't trust you, but it's it's people you who are supposed to be your colleagues, mm. right? Mm. So you almost always have to prove who you are, but mm. it's obviously exhausting. 
uh, and uh, there's not a lot of black women who are in the academy because it's just so depressing sometimes. Uh, yeah. Mm. But I mean, I must say for me, and this is part of why um, I love having people like you on the show is because firstly, it's just showing us that it can be done. Um, so for me, it's extremely inspirational to to have people like you on the show. But secondly, also that, you know, academics play a role in shaping society in shaping young minds um and i think that you know ultimately what we need is more and more asanda benyas to <laughs> to mm. to do that perhaps then just a, as a final point and, and on a lighter note um do you want to maybe just tell us what is it that you do outside of academia what do you do for fun to you know <laughs> to <laughs> do you have fun yeah i think i do but i do more activism than fun <laughs> Okay. When you try okay. to have fun, what when do you I try do? to have fun, I love the outdoors. Mm. So picnics and I love hiking. Mm. I love hiking. Okay. I've not had much time to do that the mm. past couple of years because of work, but I enjoy hiking. And I'm not just talking about going up Table Mountain, but I'm talking about the real camping, hiking for yeah. days on end. Oh wow! Uh, I enjoy that a lot mm. and spending time with my sister. Mm. And my nieces. Oh, yeah. that's precious. Yeah, and my friends, obviously. That's very cool. And then just lastly, in terms of uh, music, are there specific songs or artists that, you that you know, give you strength, give you life, make you happy, make you sad? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so just music that stands <laughs> out for you? No, I don't None. know much about music. Are you music. not a music person? <laughs> no, unfortunately, no. I'm so, no. Yeah, I'm so sorry. No, no. I, but I like good music. I mean, <laughs> I do listen to some radio shows that play really nice good music. But mm. I, I'd be lying. I can't yeah. No, it's fine. We allow you. We'll let okay. you be. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so that was Dr. Asanda Benya, a, prof a, um, a lecture of you at, oh my word, English. Guys, you see the time? You pay little than English. Um, okay, let's try that again. So that was Dr. Sandra Benya, a lecturer of sociology at the University of Cape Town. Thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening. It's Thank been an you. absolute pleasure.